You see, people collect all kinds of things. New, old, priceless, worthless. Darling, it doesn't matter what. I simply must know why. Those mothballs shouldn't get to keep all the secrets. This is the Mothball Prophecies. Hello and welcome to the Mothball Prophecies. I'm Samantha Mashburn. And I'm Jill Huffman. And today we're talking to someone who is bringing back styles of the past, not just from the patterns, but the material they use, focusing on size-inclusive, slow fashion, sewing everything on a vintage sewing machine to the notions and different things used. She's doing an incredible amount of work, especially for the vintage world right now. Welcome to the show, Josie Chase of Josie Chase Vintage. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and be on the show. It's an honor. Thank you. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show um, and sharing your story. We, you were recommended to us by a former guest and also friend of the pod. And I was, I came up on my notifications and I was like, Oh my God. Yes. Yes. I'm so happy she recommended me. I was like, I'd never heard of you guys. And then I immediately started listening to the episodes. I'm like, yes, this is so cool. Right (laughs) in my alley. Thank you. So happy we recommended it was just like meant to be. Yes. And we fully, fully believe in that. And also as a fellow Idahoan that's doing the vintage thing we have like the best admiration for that so thank you it is it's so cool what you're doing (laughs) yeah I'm so excited to do it and uh, it's been a big passion of mine I've been sewing for many years but um, when I've been selling vintage I realized that there wasn't a lot of size variants in different items Mm -hmm. and I had trouble finding stuff for like short tiny people and I know Mm -hmm. larger people have trouble finding sizes everyone has trouble finding vintage basically and I know there's a lot of fabric out there and a lot of extra craft supplies that have never been used and I want to put them to use to get people to wear vintage styles that are true to the past right and that you know as somebody who has been plus size my entire life that was the one thing I could never do with my friends right was to look through the clothing at a thrift store because generally, yeah. if it was going to fit my body, it was not one going to be true vintage. And I was just going to find like oversized t-shirts, oversized sundresses, oversized pants. So mm-hmm. it was just like, yeah. so I was always kind of on the outside of a thrift store shopping, looking for like accessories, right? That was my first true love of like vintage fashion because I knew it was always going to work. Yeah. Accessories. And yeah, I try to find shoes, but shoes are hard to find too. Yeah. Like. Those are, I feel like, harder to find, but yeah. Gosh, yeah. I always wonder too at the women in the past, like, did you not have hips and a butt? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, <laughs> seriously, this can't be a new concept mm-hmm. for us, right? Like, I, you, you had it, right? Right. Like, yeah. It's like, where did all the clothes go? Like, uh, it's, yeah, there's not much of a selection. And if there is, it's just like every once in a while you find a cool piece and mm-hmm. not very often. So I want to be able to provide that service to people who are looking to dress vintage, but looking for like a true authentic style. Yeah. yeah, And I think that's truly really missing in the vintage clothing market. I mean, they know there's some companies, right, that create vintage silhouettes in different shapes like that, but it's still kind of falls into that fast fashion. Yeah. Realm. A little costumey sometimes. Yeah. But. Especially for plus size people. Like I'm not going to call it any companies in specifics, but it's like, I don't want another peplum top yeah. or cold shoulders. <laughs> okay, I have never understood the cold shoulders. That's the other skin you're allowed to show, Joe. I mean, I enjoy a good crop top. Mm-hmm. I don't want to show my shoulders. I want to show my stomach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So I'm excited to get into your your plan and your passion, but I want to know, like, because a lot of people don't just start in the world of vintage, right? You're not, you don't just walk out the door and you're like, I'm going to go buy some old shit today. Like right? <laughs> it yeah. always starts somewhere and your inspiration similar to mine comes from your grandmother. So yes. what, what was your relationship with her related to vintage? Like, what was that like? What was she doing? Well, growing up, we would like stay every weekend at my grandparents' house just so that my parents could have some time for themselves. And she would just have tons of old stuff everywhere. She kind of just kept everything that was sentimental to her. She had tons of dresses and like lots of toys and lots of old like motorcycle memorabilia from my grandpa who owned a motorcycle shop in Seattle back in the day. And so just so much cool old stuff surrounded me growing up and we'd go like exploring in her basement full of old stuff. And it just fascinated me. And she had a lot of old Pyrex dishes that she used and they had been from her family. And so I just was really inspired watching her make di- make these beautiful dishes with vintage um, mm-hmm. dishes. And I was just like so inspired by that and wanted to start collecting them. I realized that there were more patterns out there than the ones that she had. And I was just like, wow, these are so pretty, so much cooler than anything that's made today. And they're cool display pieces and also used, but got to be safe with them. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The yes. cornerstone of vintage is like really cool, but also be safe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, that's similar to how I grew up, right? I was, we were at my, my grandparents' house a lot. My mom was single. And so it was the same kind of thing. I was always surrounded by this old stuff, but my grandma was using it. And that's what like changed its perception in my brain. I mean, of course, there was stuff in curio cabinets that I still am like, no, don't touch that. Yeah, yeah you do. <laughs> but when you start to see, and it was the same thing, like the basement was just like a treasure trove of like old stuff, right? And you're just like, what was that time yeah. like? Yeah, totally. And I'm like, what was this? How did this work? Like, what was this? And there were so many cool different old things and just learning about the past and just like growing up watching old Westerns with my grandpa and listening to old music with my grandma and all that stuff just kind of really got me into vintage at a young age. Yeah. And you start to appreciate, especially when it's tied to somebody close in your family, right? It There is mm-hmm. that second layer that's added to the vintage of like the memories that come yeah. with it. Yeah. Like and, sentimentality and nostalgia mm-hmm. and love is like all combined into one. And it's just like, such a cool thing to be able to preserve and appreciate. Mm-hmm. And to have that early appreciation for it, right? Because I feel yeah. like when it's your parents, you know, they don't necessarily appreciate their parents' stuff because they grew up with it. Just yeah, They just think it's weird. Right. They're just <laughs> like, I don't Why are you so obsessed with grandma's Pyrex? Like, chill out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my mom's like, oh, the 70s? Like, eh, mm-hmm. but now she gets it. <laughs> so I have this theory. Does your mother collect anything? Kind of. Like, she has collections of, like, teapots and like pretty antiques and stuff but Mm -hmm. she doesn't like avidly collect more of them she just like has her collection and it's on display and that's that she's kind of like a minimalist like (laughs) sort of style this is where i'm starting to get a little more scientific with my theory (laughs) because (laughs) i have this belief that like so one parent okay like a grandparent will collect or not collect right and that spurs the next generation so like my grandmother your grandmother crazy collectors right always had lots of stuff held on to everything both our mothers tiny pretty things and they've been in the same place for a hundred years and mm-hmm. they don't add to it <laughs> and then there's the daughter of that person that now or the person that comes from that minimalist household that now 
is out of control. It's gone buck wild. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm like, I can't just have the same thing. I need to be finding new things and changing things and mm-hmm. finding cool different things. So I'm just happy to know that I'm right. And then I'm in yeah. good company with most people because. <laughs> totally what happened here. <laughs> and we all know we're not getting cool stuff from our parents' houses. We have to go. No, got to go no, to grandma. There's like maybe one or two things of my in my mom's house that I'm like, I want that if you ever decide to get rid of it. And she'll be like, well, that was your great grandma's. And I'm like, makes sense. Well, how come you don't have any of this stuff? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I now threaten like a bad like retirement home with my mom. There's a couple things she has where I go, if I ever find out that you like threw this away or donated it, I'm not bringing my son oh. over. Interesting. <laughs> Cutting ties because I've looked at that since I was five years old. She's yeah. like, it's really not that great. And I'm like, to you. Yeah. Pieces mean so much different things to different people and hold such different values. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Are your grandparents still alive? My grandma is still alive on my okay. mom's side. That's it. What does she think about your collecting and what you're doing? Oh, she absolutely loves it. She's so proud of everything that I do. She's like my biggest supporter. Um, yeah, she's always happy when I find cool new things and loves to see how I dress. And it reminds her of the past and just brings her joy to see me being joyful about things that were around in her time. Mm-hmm. Does she ever say to you, like, I had that when I was 15 and I just threw it away? Does she say that yeah, to you? Much. <laughs> yeah, like I got a red 50s dress and she's like, oh, my gosh, I had a dress that looked just like that, but it was in another color. And oh, I just don't have it anymore. I'm like, oh, grandma, I would have loved to have that. But yeah, it just things bring back memories that they don't even remember that they have. And it's just so cool to hear all the stories. And yeah, just imagine what it would be like when they were young. That's what I try to think of because they're still young at heart. People are. Mm -hmm. And I have a close tie to sewing in general. My grandmother has always sewn her own clothing from like 14 years old to this day. And she made like her prom dress was her wedding dress. Like she always made things. If she wanted a coat, she would make a coat. So I grew up around sewers and then my mom sewed growing up and I had my first sewing machine at like five years old. Wow. And so like I have a bobbin and like needle and thread tattooed. Like I have this, I used to fall asleep to the sound of a sewing machine. So like your mom let you put your five-year-old hands into a sewing machine. Yeah. I, you first start learning on ruled notebook paper oh. and you start by sewing lines. That's smart. And oh. like my mom would put tape on the sewing machine to pull you like where to put your hands. Right. Wow. And so and it was probably just to keep me out of her hair. It totally was. Let's be honest. I also had my first glue gun at that age. And oh. <laughs> she'd be like, you can go glue on the fireplace because it was tile. Oh. And then I knelt on what I was gluing, which was like a bunch of Christmas blocks. And then stood up with them glued to my knee. And my mom was like, oh, shit, maybe that wasn't a good idea. Like, bad idea. Go back to the sewing machine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I um, have the affinity for, like, just the love and stuff for sewing in particular because it's just such a huge. My mom is now, like, a home ec teacher and she gets to teach kids how to sew, which is, like, the most perfect thing for her. So I just just have to say that, too, to you to be like, this is so special to me what you're doing. That's amazing that you have that connection. And 
Oh, it's so cool. Like I hear so many stories of people that are really into sewing. And when I'm out buying fabric, I see like older ladies and they're like, do you really sew? And I'm like, yes, I do. And they're like, oh, that makes me so happy. Like it's kind of a dying art. And I'm like, yeah, but hopefully we can keep it, keep it alive. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Did you, right. Yeah. Keep it. Cause it really is an important skill to have. Yeah. Did you teach yourself how to sew? Did somebody teach you? Uh, kind of both. Like I started learning to sew from, I think, like, my grandma and my aunt on my aunt's sewing machine when I was younger. My aunt was really into sewing back in the day and lots of different arts and crafts, and she would teach me a lot of different arts back in the day. So I kind of learned the basics then, but then I took sewing 4-H for a year when I was, like, 10 or 12, Mm -hmm. maybe. And I liked it, but it was kind of weird. Like, my teacher had, like, a hoarder house, and it kind of creeped me out, like, go into a hoarder house because I'd grown up in like a minimalist, super Mm -hmm. clean house. And then like learning to sew is kind of intimidating, but I really enjoyed it and loved that experience. And it taught me how to sew and just do the basics. But ever since then, it's just like YouTube and learning off the internet what I can. Cause it's like, you can basically learn anything for free on the internet these days. So why not? (laughs) And it really is incredible too, how, cause I'm a very visual learner, right? If I can see somebody do something, I'm like, Oh, okay. That's how you're doing it. And a lot of sewing and sewing garments specifically is the detail work that goes into making a garment fit mm-hmm. and the steps you have to take to get to that point and like the ironing and pinning and knowing the different stitches. Yeah. And it takes so much longer than anyone can ever anticipate. So it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, there's so many little things that go into it, but it's so satisfying once you get the finished product and it fits just right. Or even if there are a few mistakes and you kind of fix it, you're still proud of it. Cause it's like you worked through those problems and figured it out and you made something out of something that would have been going to the trash otherwise mm-hmm. in my scenario, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was, you know, I, my mom always made like costumes and different clothes for us growing up and I was like her only girl. So I got like the most ridiculous toddler dresses <laughs> with like all of the lace and plaid, like very nineties, oh. just like, like all of it in one dress, literally all of it. I'll have to see if I can find pictures for this episode. You totally to post because we really need to see those. It was, yeah. And it was, you know, whatever she could dream up or whatever I could dream up. There was one time we were going to go to a Renaissance fair and I didn't have anything to wear. And so I oh. called my mom and I was like, Hey, I'm at Joanne's. Um, <laughs> And I, I need a costume for this. She's like, well, when is it? I was like, Saturday. This was like Thursday. <laughs> oh, my hell. She did it. She made me a full, like, gown and petticoat and, like, little corset that we made. Oh. She probably cussed you out during the whole time, too. She enjoyed it. I, I also didn't know during that time that I was pregnant. So, this is the last time it fit the way it was supposed to. <laughs> So growing up, of course, you have this grandma now that loves collecting and she's like, I got to teach her how to do this through osmosis. (laughs) Yeah. What were some of the things you were starting to collect at a young age before you got into clothing? Um, Mostly just Pyrex was where I started. Um, I started looking at thrift stores. I didn't really go to thrift stores much when I was younger because my parents weren't that into thrifting, Mm -hmm. but I was always like, why not? Like these clothes have already been used. Why do we need to be producing more clothes when these clothes already exist? So I was thrifting regular clothes at the time, not so much vintage, Mm -hmm. but I would thrift vintage Pyrex and collect those. And then it kind of moved into clothing slowly over time when I discovered Depop and started selling on there. And then I was like, oh, vintage is kind of cool. And then I started getting into it and selling more. And looking back, there's so many pieces that I wish that I hadn't sold because now they're totally my style and they didn't used to be. But Mm -hmm can't go back i'm still grateful for the sales but <laughs> right it's like that vintage regret that lives with you forever you're just like son of a mm, it's true mm-hmm. yep. 
so many of those pieces, sadly, but yeah. moving on. <laughs> right. Got to find new things. Yeah. Well, Jill's the big Pyrex collector on the show. Okay, I'm not that big, but I do enjoy it. Yeah, a little bit of Pyrex here and there. <laughs> I wish that people could see my face right now. <laughs> Because it's the face Jill gives me that. when I tell a lie, <laughs> a straight up lie. I don't have that much. Okay, like a little bit, but like not. Okay, some people have way bigger collections than I do, and it's like an eighth of what they have. Mm-hmm. I'm just yeah, happy I that. I have a tiny collection compared to actual yeah, collections out you. there. Josie gets it. Uh, see, I'm happy to be in the opposite seat because you're usually roasting me <laughs> on my collecting. <laughs> I know I don't like this. Let's feel back. (laughs) But no, Jill is the one. And it's nice, too, because if I'm out and I see a piece of Pyrex, because I don't collect it outside of what I have in my collection. And so when I see something, I'll just, like, send her a picture. And I'll be like, hey. Or I FaceTime her while she's... I'm like, hey, real fast. Do you want I know. I'm usually in a procedure. And I'm like, oh, shit. uh, I got to take this. And they're like, oh, is it your kids? And I'm like, yeah. Let's say that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) She'll just be like, mom, look at this Pyrex. (laughs) Usually, yeah, one time I, I was gonna get a piece of Pyrex and I was like debating. I'm like, oh, I'll just let it sit there. And I looked around the store and I came back and it was gone. Yeah, no, I was you when can't. I was first getting into Pyrex. I'm like, yep, nope, you can't leave it there. <laughs> Even if I don't know if I'm going to get it, I will at least put it in my cart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and kind of sit that. on it. And then, um, I had picked up this cute little pink bowl. It had obvious like dishwasher damage and all that kind of stuff. And I was gonna get it. And then <laughs> this woman, she's like, that looks like shit. And I was like, <laughs> So thank you. Thanks, Brenda. And she was like, it's not even in mint condition. I was like, I know somebody hurt it very badly. And now it's coming to my home. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. going to be taken care of. Yeah. Loved and repurposed or yeah. yeah. I guess I got into records more after um, Pyrex because I got a record player and I was like, okay, now yeah. I need to get all the good music. See, that's my that. husband. He, he collects the record players and the records. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I need to get a vintage record player. My record player is still my new one that my first one that I got, but. I came across one in an auction. You should watch auctions in your area because they're usually, uh, here's your vintage tip of the week. One of them, there'll probably be several here, but if you are looking for either a bigger like piece of furniture or a record player or speakers for a record player, watch your local online auction houses. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I'll need to figure out what those are because I have no clue. We'll we'll help you after (laughs) this. We'll show you. We'll show you how to do it. But I I found a pair. I found a I had a vintage record play already, but no way to listen to it. I didn't have old oh. enough speakers. And I was watching an online auction and I saw these two speakers from the same era come up and no name brand. You're just like hoping. So I had <laughs> I got them for fifteen dollars. Wow. And they're half the size of me. They're over three feet tall. Yeah, they're quite oh, big. big <laughs> and they work perfectly. So yes, yeah, so that's cool. what I would so what okay so when you started getting records what were you starting to buy music wise like what's your music uh, taste like the runaways got like saturday night fever like kind of more disco era and rock and roll like death leopard just whatever i could find at the thrift store basically because mm-hmm. i was not into paying a bunch of money when i was in high school for records so just whatever i could find um the runaways like album was the first one that my mom ever bought me and so that one's really special to me but yeah ever since then it's just been whatever i can fine thrifting and I've been really lucky like I came across one of my old teachers entire collections at the thrift store and got like some really amazing records got like Beatles Casey and Sunshine Band oh, got Marty Robbins all sorts of good things was yeah. that the was that the box you posted on TikTok like the whole yeah it was incredible 
Yeah, so many good ones. There's like CCR. Oh, I can't eat. Yes, too many good ones. Great like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was so lucky to get that. So happy to get that. Yeah, it is really. There was one estates I went to recently. There was two at the same time in Pocatello. So it luckily like split the crowd, right? So they both weren't packed. And I went to this one and it was in a townhouse, which is always like sometimes disappointing. Like you roll up and you're like, oh, it's a townhouse. There's not going to be a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. No, they had like lived there forever because the whole basement was like a 70s game room den. I love that. (laughs) And like had a built in bar and like the drop ceiling. It was. Yeah. And I came and I turned to the corner and there were two tables full of vinyl records (gasps) and nobody else was looking through them. So I like set my pile down and just like started to fish through the records and found some really good ones mm-hmm. that's amazing i was like i went to this estate sale the other day and this lady had this entire collection of 17 magazines from the 70s and i got all of them and got like 30 or 40 of them and they're just so cool like they're not the most like respectful of things back in the mm-hmm. day but they're cool to look through and like appreciate the fashion i guess but mm-hmm. the aesthetic not so much the yeah vintage style not vintage values forever because garbage (laughs) values yeah yeah i love looking through old ephemera like that or periodicals of just seeing like i like we went to salt lake and i bought a what would you call it a magazine not really a catalog it was it would be a magazine for its time because yeah it was from 1919 1929 and it was from paris Wow. And so it's all of this beautiful art deco artwork and fashion. And like the front is like this nude watercolor woman sitting on top of a daisy. Like it's so. Yeah, it was really pretty. That's amazing. Sounds beautiful. But yeah, to flip through it and to see all of the old, like even just the advertisements, like in fashion. And yeah. Yeah. So you're. I have a lady's home journal from like 1910. There's like an old flower ad and like Heinz ketchup. And it's just so cool to see these like full page, like little like write paragraphs just describing one product. People had the time to Mm -hmm. read those ads back in the day. Yeah, that's all they had, really. Yeah. And advertising was so beautiful, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It will be interesting to, because really, like our generation, this time that we're living in, magazines are kind of going out, right? I don't know. Like I work in a salon and we used to have, this was obviously pre-pandemic times, BC, but we (laughs) would have like piles of magazines in the salon, right? And you would go and gather them up for whoever to look through them. And now that we're, you know, things are a little bit better, you can start to have magazines again. We just like canceled a ton of subscriptions because people just have their phones. Yeah. Well, yeah. And now you can get the magazines on your phone. So it's right. like. So are those yeah. going to be super collectible? Oh. Yeah. I feel like magazines are becoming like a vintage commodity now. Like people are getting more into them as sort of a yeah. aesthetic thing. But. I don't know. Yeah, they're cool to flip through. Like, I got like all the teen magazines, like Tiger Beat and Bop when I was a teenager. Oh, yeah. Like, hanging up Jonas Brothers posters and Justin Bieber, but now well, we're moving on. <laughs> right. Well, and I like too, you mentioned in your email about an early influence, right, of pop culture for you, which was that yeah. 70s show, which I need to go back and watch now to oh, watch God. all this stuff in the background. That show, like, <laughs> raised me. <laughs> Yeah, because that was probably your first, like, true introduction to their yeah. interpretation of 70s pop yeah, culture. Yeah, I think there's a pretty decent interpretation of the 70s. Like, the clothes are pretty good. Like, aesthetics are pretty good. And, yeah, like, me and my sister watched that from a pretty young age, like, early 2000s. But we both just loved it and loved the 
clothes that they wore, the styles that they had, and just thought it was such a funny show. And yeah, that show has just been like my comfort TV show ever since then. Like I can rewatch every season of that show. Well, the last season's not very good, but <laughs> the first two seasons are the best. And I can rewatch those a million times my whole life. It's like, I just feel like a part of that like era now. Right. Well, and I'm sure as you move through and you become more familiar with vintage too, do you like, you'll see something in the background and be like, holy shit, I can't believe they have Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm like, I have that bowl or like, oh, that's this type of chair. Like, that's probably worth like $1,000 now. <laughs> like, it's just like having that knowledge. You can't see old things the same anyway, but it's still fun. It's like a treasure hunt and like being able to know things that other people might not see mm-hmm. or appreciate. I'm sure I hope that right. there is at least one set designer that listens to the show and knows that you are wholly appreciated in the vintage community. That's right. <laughs> Your, all your hard work is really paying it's off. It's really right paying now. off. You're making our husbands annoyed and us very happy. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Our partners are mad. Because I'll do it. I'll go, ooh. I'll go, that lamp is like from the 1900s. And my husband's like, stop. <laughs> or I go, yeah. that's, an, that's an Eames chair. That's a lounge chair. Uh, and he'll just be like, oh my gosh. He'll be like, I don't care. Mm-hmm. They're getting ready to tell me who murdered her. I'm like, well, she oh was murdered <laughs> on a Victorian fainting couch. Do you understand how rare that is? He's like, stop. Yeah. There's this like old laundromat where I live and they have these Herman Miller chairs out front that have been there since like the sixties and they're all like rusted and they have like an ashtray in the middle. And I went there one night to take photos with them and the man came out and he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, um, is it okay if I take photos here? Like, I just really like these chairs. And he's like, um, yeah, I guess. Like, now okay, you go back you. and you go, how much do you want for the chairs? Yeah. I'm like, they've probably been sitting there for 50 years, but mm-hmm. Oh gosh, they're so cool. <laughs> there was, we had, it's like a small town, you know, right? That thing of it always has a cool laundromat. Yeah. There's one where I grew up in Shelley and it had this fantastic sign that was out front and it was the 60s or 70s, kind of like the, oh God, what's his name? Peter Max, that kind oh, of art. Oh, my yeah. favorite. But it was That's a seven up sign and it had like oh. the rays of the sun and the big flowers. Yes. I have like a metal version of that sign, like the Uncola, that whole promo back then. Mm-hmm. So good. And so when I was, I talked to my mom on the phone, I went, the next time you go to grandma's house, cause you drive past the laundromat, I go, well, you look and see if that sign's up. And no, they've replaced it with some modern sign. So oh I want to call them and be like, Hey, what happened to the sign that was hanging out front? And they'll just probably be like, okay, well on the way, like on the road going to Montana, there's this guy that has a fence and it is like, an original seven up uncola painted advertisement thing. And I need to like ask him if I can take photos there or something. It was like huge and massive. And I like just saw it when I was driving. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I need to go back. Oh, that's so cool. I love now, like, especially like recognizing stuff like that when you're out and you're just like, wait, does that person know? Yeah. I'm like, do they realize how cool that is? Mm -hmm. Are they going to think that I'm a weirdo? Yeah, I'm like just taking a photo in front I mean, of someone. I mean, maybe, and then you'll explain to them what it is. Why I'm here. Yeah. And then they'll ask how much they can get for it. Mm-hmm. Probably. <laughs> they had a cool hippie van out front, so I bet they're pretty cool with it. They probably know. But they probably know. They're chill people. They'd probably let me go take photos. They probably would. You should totally jump yeah. on that. Oh, that'd be yeah. so cool. Well, and I... <laughs> right. That's the one thing about growing up in areas that are pretty rural, right? You see cool stuff like that or different art yeah. things. Yeah, people have such cool stuff around here, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Well, and we're, and I love too that we're in like vastly different areas, right, of the state. Mm-hmm. Cause like people think where we live looks like where you live and like vice versa, right? Like people yeah. are like, oh, does it just like forests everywhere? And you're like, no, it's just the desert. 
Yeah, there's just like different <laughs> rain everywhere. And it's like, it could be the desert and then you drive 20 minutes and you're in the forest. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> By the river. Like, it's just we, all sorts of different terrain. <laughs> we were talking to somebody before you who lives in Ireland. Oh, and wow. uh, before we started the conversation, we told him where we were from. And he was like, oh, you're in Idaho. And then he goes, I just saw an article somewhere about Idaho. And we both just went, oh, God, what did it say? <laughs> They're like, it's not true. And he goes, oh, something about like wolves or something. And we both went, oh, yeah, okay. And then we started to talk about the wildlife that you can just encounter. And he goes, all I'm imagining is opening your front door. And there's just like bears and mountain lions and wolves. And I'm like, sometimes... Depending That's kind of how it was for me growing up. I grew up in like this place called Waha, which was like the woods. And I had a mountain right behind my house. And there would be like bear and deer and cougar and bobcats, all sorts of animals. But not like that everywhere. <laughs> no, I, mean, yeah. I was just like, I don't know. I guess you just kind of get used to it. I don't. I don't yeah, know. Like, I'm like, there's much more dangerous places. I mean, you just need to carry your bear yeah. spray mm-hmm. and be yeah. aware. Don't yeah. go into the forest at certain times of year. Yeah. <laughs> And if you do, don't have food on you. Yeah. Fine. For sure. I mean, just the things you learn growing up here. Just regular. I know. I just remember went camping to Island Park one time and they were having a grizzly bear problem. He kept coming into the um, campsites, um, Buffalo Creek or something like Mm -hmm. that. I can't remember. And I just remember sleeping and then I hear something and I was like, oh shit, he's coming for me. (laughs) Like, I'm just like, my husband feels me too. He's like, he's like, what are you doing? I was like, I think there's a bear. And he's like, no, there's not. I'm like, I think there is. And he's like, shut up, go back to bed. And then the next morning, like, I guess the bear was in the campground next to us. And I was like, I told you. I know when I hear a bear. It's like my deepest fear to be eaten alive by a bear. Oh my God. Yeah. Well. yeah. Noted. We won't go anywhere with, we won't go to Alaska. I know those people trip. are crazy. I have friends that go and they're like, show me pictures and they're like salmon fishing. And then just like right next to them is a grizzly bear eating the mm-hmm. salmon. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh yeah, it's fine. You just, you know, sometimes it just gets yeah. annoying because if you're reeling that salmon in, they just take it. I mean, and I'm not going <laughs> to argue. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, that, that seems like the problem. Excuse me, Mr. Bear. <laughs> I actually worked really hard on that. I know. <laughs> Okay. Like, hey, pal, you just ate a salmon. You could at least give me this one. This one's me. <laughs> um, and like growing up too in the area that you grew up with, do you find that you have good luck finding vintage pieces? Yes, I. Yeah, I She's feel like. Just like, uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like. Well, I don't know. Like, I've been thrifting in like Spokane and Seattle and like all around the Northwest, basically, and like Montana, those areas. Montana's pretty good, but. I feel like Idaho is like a sweet spot for vintage. I don't want to like give it away. But I mean, I, yeah, there's good vintage like at almost every thrift store. It seems like maybe I'm just lucky, but. No, I would agree. But I just want to tell people don't come here because we have lots of bears and mountain lions. Yeah. And, and, and rattlesnakes. Those little bitches sneak up to on fight you. Fight your way into a thrift store. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every time. Every, every time. time. Mm hmm. <laughs> The bears work yeah. for the vintage bourgeoisie. Really good here. And it can be overwhelming because there's so much that you just kind of have to be picky at times. It's and, true. Yeah. And like there's so much stuff that you want. It's like, 
I could keep going every day and keep finding cool things that would go perfectly in my house, but I just can't keep spending money like that and yeah. accumulating that much stuff in my tiny house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you'll leave something behind. You're like, nope, you're going to stay here because you're not right for my home. And then you get home and you're like, well, shit, you maybe were. Yeah. You could have gone right there. Mm-hmm. And then it's gone by the time you go back. And yeah. we always ask this too of like, what is your estate sale or yard sale like? What do you do when you get there? Like, what's your path of like finding stuff? Your MO at an I estate sale? I am pretty new to estate sales. Like, I've only been to a few. I just started going this year, but I don't know. I basically just try to go wherever I can go. Like, that seems pretty clear and free, but just trying to go for whatever items I was looking for. Like, the last one I went to had a serger sewing machine that I really wanted for my business. And I'm like, gosh, people will probably want that. And so mm-hmm. I'm like bolting in the house and I'm like grabbing it. And I wanted like a million other things there too. And I'm like telling the guy that worked there, I'm like, please mark this as sold. I need other things. And I'm like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> people were pretty chill. I mean, it was like an appointment only. There were like 20 people per hour, but there were still a lot of people kind of like going in there, being fast about their stuff. And, but luckily I got everything that I wanted. That was awesome. Nice job. But just try to go the past le- path least traveled, I guess. Mm-hmm. People like, I don't know, I guess it's around here, but everyone goes to like the kitchen and gets all the Pyrex first. And so I just like don't really bother with Pyrex at estate sales. I just focus on like sheets and fabric and clothes and plant stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, see, you're like nice. I'm like, no. I was like, I actually fought a woman. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. I Because I go to the kitchen first. Sam and I, if we're together, we break up. Mm-hmm. And we both know what we both like, and Mm -hmm. so we'll pick a long way. But I went to the kitchen area, and I had seen there was um, the primary bowls, and it was the big yellow bowl, and then it just went up from there. And I had it in my hand, and this woman came behind me and tried to grab it from me. And I was like, oh, no. Uh, I was like, I'm I'm taking this. And she was like, well, I saw it first. And I was like, well, my hand was on it first. so, And I'm stronger (laughs) than you. So... (laughs) Because I had all, it was like six bowls and I had it all in one hand because I had my basket and I just put it in there and she just walked off. Well, she didn't turn around and there was like the little fridge. Oh yeah. Oh, the fridges. Fridges. And so I grabbed all those too and a big rolled red um, bowl. Oh, nice. But then she kept watching me. Oh no. Like. That's intense. Yeah. I'll fight you, lady. I was just so, oh. then, like, we knew the woman who had um, ran the estate sale. So I just told her, I was like, Linda, I'm just going to kind of tuck this behind here. She's like, oh, that's fine. Like, yeah. This lady's <laughs> giving me crazy Pyrex eyes in the house. Yeah. There's some crazy Pyrex ladies around here. So I just said, mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't try to compete yeah. with that. That's <laughs> exactly why we split up. I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> I usually go by myself because I don't have anyone to go with around here usually, but. Oh, see, which we go sometimes with each other. Yeah, we don't go. But, we don't aren't able to go all the time because um, I'm a nurse, so I'm always working um, like constantly. Wow. So if she goes, I'll just be like, okay, in this picture, in this area, was this object? Mm-hmm. I will yes. Venmo the money. Mm-hmm. Just tell me how much. <laughs> yeah. And then one time, yeah. Sam and I went together, and my husband was 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 with us. Game changer, taking him. And it really wasn't though, because he's a he peruses. He's a mosier. Like he just was yeah. like, Sam and I had gone through the house, what, three or four times mm-hmm. at her piles ready to go. And he's just like, well, I just, I just got done in the living room. I still, I got to go with the rest of the house. And I'm like, like what are you doing? No, we're, we're ready to go. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm sweaty. It's time to leave. 
And Jill and I get like these crazy looks in our eyes (laughs) when we're at a sale, like a little feral. We're just like, it's game. Yeah. So, you know, if you ever need somebody to go estate show shopping with Mm -hmm. you, call us. We'll come. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I definitely will. Uh, The last one I went to was like on a a tall hill and I got like three boxes of stuff and I had to walk up and down the hill three different times with heavy stuff. And it was like hot that day and I was like drenched in sweat and I had to go babysit later that day. I'm like, oh gosh, but I mean, it was worth it for the surgery. (laughs) But during it, you're like, is this? Yeah. As you're carrying it down, you're like, what did I do? Yeah, it's a lot of work. But I mean, the surgery was like 60 bucks. And I feel like those are a lot of money. So I'm like, yeah, that's a pretty good price. Yeah, to get it at a discount. And yeah, to have one that's older and and it's going to work for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I took some figuring out because I'd never actually used a serger before. I'd never had that machine. So I'd teach myself how to use that. That oh, was fun. Wow. <laughs> took a few hours, but figured it out. <laughs> so I want to, I want to hear about this new endeavor that you're on. Cause I think one, I think it's so important and I think it's wonderful and sustainable what you're doing and how you're branding it. I think it's just like chef's kiss. It's so perfect. But I want to know like where this really started for you, like that spark of interest to take it on. Yeah. Um, it kind of just kind of built over time, like little clues kind of led to one another. Like I was selling vintage clothes for years and I enjoyed it, but it wasn't like very fulfilling to me. Like I just kind of felt like I was taking and not giving as much. And Mm. I wanted to put more like creation into my business because I've been like a really creative and artistic person my whole life. And so like, I just wanted to give back more in a way. And I saw that there was this like gap in the vintage market for like plus size clothes, just, just like generally any size, just to be able to find vintage clothes in a certain style in this size to be able to buy it. I know I won't be able to produce that much to be able to, put out that much be slow fashion like small batch but to be able to provide still cool looks that are cute and fun and unique and kind of provide that sense of like confidence and Mm. like I don't know it's just like I I felt so bad because so many people would ask me do you have something in this size do you have something in this size and I'm like no but I can be on the lookout and whenever I would find something that size it wouldn't be that cute and I'm like Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to wear this so why would they want to wear this Mm -hmm. so I'm like I want to create things that everyone wants to wear or like it looks good on multiple bodies mm-hmm. kind of interests a lot of people it's not just like your basic thrift store finds yeah <laughs> and like fun clothing that's like evokes interest and looks like I don't know how to describe it just like fun and youthful and like mm-hmm. well it's more bespoke it's more of like speaking to who the person is like it personality wise rather than the clothing options they have available to them where they live. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's like, I find people want like bell bottoms and they're so hard to find bell bottoms. I only have like two pairs and I wear the same two pairs all the time. And Mm -hmm. I want to be able to provide that to people who can't find those in different sizes, but also provide like different patterns that wouldn't be expected. Like a wild floral print that is actually true vintage and not like a made up print. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just kind of creating a new fun spin on the vintage aspect, but keeping it still with its vintage roots. Yeah, and I think that's incredible. And I I have to also commend you on your consciousness of like where you're getting your materials, how you're shipping your stuff. Like, why is that such a huge aspect of it to you to keep it that way? Um, Well, yeah, because sustainability is kind of like the forefront of this whole like secondhand fashion movement that's happening. 
And there's a lot of people that like ship in plastic. I mean, I do too sometimes. And Mm -hmm. it's just like, there's so much plastic accumulating in the world. There's so many new products being made that don't need to be made. We could just be making smarter decisions as business owners and Mm -hmm. people who are providing to slowly make a better impact on the world. And it's just like, if you're going to go to that effort to provide a sustainable service, you want it to be fully sustainable and not just like, oh, here's this vintage fabric, but we put it in this plastic container that will Mm -hmm. never Mm -hmm. decompose. And it's like, that kind of defeats the purpose of keeping old things alive, but like helping the earth in the same way. Mm -hmm. It's like sustainability, vintage, all kind of mixed into one. Yeah. And also let's hold like large corporations accountable for the damage they do to the earth first, instead of like shaming, like not saying that you're doing this, but like the way they've shamed regular everyday citizens into thinking like, if you don't recycle, you suck. Right. Yeah. They are totally like the number one contributors to all the way. And yeah, I wish that changes could be made to that, but I'm just trying to do what I can do as one little person and hopefully make a change and hopefully maybe inspire other people to kind of follow in a similar sort of sustainable path and maybe we can all make the world a better place little by little. And when we, you know, when we were starting the show, we were talking about different ways we could add value to the vintage community without creating a lot more stuff. And when we were doing our Patreon stuff, we were like, okay, how do we make this to where we're not creating a bunch of waste every month to send stuff out? And so we first started with the idea of having um, vintage tote bags that are made mm-hmm. entirely out of vintage fabric, except for the front panel, which is screen printed locally. Okay. Yeah. Like, that'd be super, super cool. Yeah. So we were like, okay, how do we do this? So then it was like sourcing vintage for that or like finding different odds and ends to send out when we're out thrifting and estate sailing and then working towards sustainable packaging. Like when we ship packages from our houses, it's all recycled packing material, whether it was sent to us by somebody else or from like my, like Jill's a nurse. I work at a salon. There's lots of packaging that comes through there. But yeah, I think it's important to be conscious of that, obviously, right? Especially in the state that we live in, in Idaho. Using what we can is like so important. There's just so much stuff out there. It's Mm -hmm. like, we don't need to be producing all these little new things for everything. We have so much stuff that we can utilize and, make good new things out of yeah Mm -hmm. so when you are creating because you you haven't launched anything yet no not yet which is fine i think that the fact that you're making a small batch to launch and like have that and you've generated an incredible amount of interest i think it's going to be fantastic but when you're going into creating pieces what does your process look like when you're going to make a garment Um, Well, I first find like a pattern that I really want to use, like a vintage pattern. And I try it out first, like a sample piece. It's like the shirt that I'm wearing is usually I just make it out of like a ripped up bed sheet that I find at a thrift store, Mm -hmm. like kind of cheap material. And I make it and see how it works. And then I see if I need to make any tweaks or changes, see if I want like the sleeves to be puffier, to fit a little bit different. I'll kind of alter that and then make my own pattern pieces And then size it from there up or down. And if people need like specific measurements, we could do that in certain areas, but Mm -hmm. it's a lot of like fine tuning and math and ratios and all that, but it's fun. And it's like a cool process to be able to work that out and like kind of do the technicality behind it, but Mm -hmm. have it still be artistic and like creating something that would have otherwise been trash probably. Cause a lot of the stuff I use, like I try to not use like perfect bed sheets. I try to like use ripped up bed sheets that like would have been thrown away otherwise. 
So it's just cool to be able to save that and give it a new life. And I think too, like I said, here's another vintage tip of the week. If you're looking for fabric with those vintage patterns, look in the bedding section at thrift stores Mm -hmm. or garage sales or things like that and look at it as a couple of yards of fabric versus, you know, what it was used for. For sure. Yeah. My thrift store sells like they have this box and they call it paint sheets, like sheets to lay down when you paint your walls. And there's like the prettiest vintage sheets in there. And I'm like, oh my gosh, no, do not Mm -hmm. put paint on these. And I'm like taking them, but yeah, they have holes, but that's okay. You can just work around them. Or Mm -hmm. I've made a couple pieces that have had holes in them and I just like make cute little patches on them. And patchwork is super cool too. So it's like, you can still even use holy fabric. Mm -hmm, True. And it, you know, it tells a story too, right? It's not perfect and pristine. It's got some wear. It's got yeah, you know. I love the whole imperfect thing. It's yeah, fashion doesn't have to be perfect. Sustainability doesn't have to be perfect. Just kind of like making conscious efforts to better yeah. ourselves and our world. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a favorite item that you like to make for yourself, clothing-wise? Mm, not particularly. I like making tops. I'm into like kind of more crop tops and like cutesy little tops. But I'm just basically still learning more as I go because mm-hmm. I I took a lot of time off from sewing in between when I first started and when I got back into it because I've always been kind of like an artistic creative person that would kind of like switch interests like oh I'm gonna sew for yeah. a month mm-hmm. oh, I'm gonna do painting and, yeah and so sewing is like the one thing that I feel like I can consistently do because it just feels like it's like a process and it's so satisfying to finish and it's not as unexpected as like painting or something like mm-hmm. painting is so intimidating for me I love it but it's intimidating to like not know your whole process Mm-hmm. But so knowing the process and being able to fix your mistakes a little bit easier is kind of fun and makes you feel like a little bit easier to make mistakes and build your knowledge based on that. Mm-hmm. Well, cause um, it's pretty, it's pretty apparent pretty quickly, right? When you're sewing and then you can kind of like back your way out of it, even though it sucks, but yeah, you know, there's not really like a thread picking equivalent in painting other than just like getting rid of that whole section. Yeah, see, to me, yeah. sewing is super intimidating but painting oh. is really easy. <laughs> See? <laughs> See, yeah, everyone's different. Yeah, mm-hmm. different kind of niches and interests, but yeah, I love the arts, all forms. Like, mm-hmm. I did crochet for a while. That was fun, but my hands got kind of tired. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did that. I did I kind of the same thing. I've always bounced around between different hobbies and things like that, which now makes a lot more sense. But um, <laughs> I was... Uh, like learned how to crochet and then learned how to do needlework online. Like just learned how to embroider and was like for my wedding, I was like, I'm going to embroider all of my bridesmaids and the mother's uh, handkerchief. And I did as an insane person. And did you never do it again? Yeah. I never did it again. Yeah. Dove head first into the interest. (laughs) It was really fun to make. And I made each person. It was something related to like their favorite thing. And I worked on it while I was working at a retirement home. So I would do it like once all my stuff was done and I just sit. Well, that doesn't surprise me because you made pooth houses for yep. everybody mm-hmm. for Christmas this year. Yeah. It's always something like that. Yeah, I don't know. I it's, have to be really in the mood. Like I just started sketching again. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. And I was just like, oh, man, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> Uh, be grateful that your brain doesn't just go like, Hey, you got to figure this hobby all the way out or you're a piece of shit. <laughs> Cause that's what yeah, my brain. Does. No, my brain is just like, eh, that was fun. Stop doing it. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, you have to be good at this. Where's your value. If you're not good at this new skill. 
No, mine is I hide my skills and then I, I just never show anybody. <laughs> this is very true. Oh, yeah. We need like, to show people. <laughs> I know. Everybody gets on to me. I made um, a friend of mine her uh, her baby just turned one, so she needed a smash cake. Yeah, where's the pictures? And I have a friend who's the photographer, another friend who's the photographer, and she took it, and they were talking about cake and whatever. And I just popped in, and my friend Courtney, she just looked at me. She's like, Jill makes cakes. I was <laughs> like, what What do you need? And they're like, a smash cake? I was like, oh, yeah, I could do that. And I was like, you just want something simple? And they're like, yeah. So I brought it, and they're like, why aren't you selling these? And I'm like, ooh, don't say that. No, we don't, we don't do that. This is just for fun. I don't, let's not. And she's like, I am blasting you everywhere. And I'm like, please don't. She's very talented. We don't want, no. She's the enigma of the duo. I don't like to be noticed. Well, share your talents more. Yeah, I know. That's what everybody says. They're like, just do it. And I'm like, no, it's fine. I've lasted 41 years doing this by myself with nobody knowing I can keep going. And then you met me. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, everybody, look at Jill. Slingshot her out in the I world. Know, like, don't look at me. I'm like the man behind the curtain. Don't look at me. Oh, you're our Oz. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to ask, is there a favorite like type of fabric that you like to work with? Do you have a thing that you always kind of lean towards outside of sheets, vintage fun sheets? Mostly just like anything with a fun print. Like I like psychedelic prints or like floral prints, like fun, colorful things. Like I just really like color and just like fun, whimsical patterns. Those are my mm-hmm. favorite, but they are harder to find. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Love that. And I wanted to note it too, because I think it's important because you use, you source everything that you can that's vintage and then the, everything else that you can't source. How do you find that? That is like what I get at the local craft store. She has machines that do everything. She has tons of good um, notions. I think uh, the Gutermann thread is like one of the most sustainable brands. And I'm trying to get onto the fully recycled thread too. So that the oh, thread wow. will be completely oh. recycled as well. So yeah, just trying to make every piece as best as I can. I think it's uh, one, I think it's incredible Two, you, um, your skills for being self-taught and partially taught by a mentor are incredible like i was watching some of your videos of you sewing and i was like my mom would be so proud of her (laughs) and your attention to detail in because garment making is not a simple task no it's not and really an you know an eighth of an inch off on either side is can skew the whole garment and i just want to say that i really think that you're onto something like truly special Mm -hmm. with this and your passion for it shines through that you could tell that you really love what you're doing. And I think that's what makes the difference. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. I'm so glad that that shows through too, because it is something that I'm so passionate about and want to share with people. And it hasn't been easy to share or do, but mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's what I'm passionate about. It's what I feel like I'm meant to do. And I'm going to do it one way or another. Right. And if you ever need any feedback on like a plus size body and how garments fit and where our problem areas are, feel free to reach out. 100%. Yeah. Because I'm like a loner here in this small town and I don't know anybody here. So I'm like, I don't know how to get models or like. Well, you just met your new best friends. So Thank you so much. (laughs) Yeah. I, I can't, like I said, I can't wait for this to be out in the world. So so everybody can come and follow you and be there for that day. Where can our listeners find you online? Okay, right now I am mostly on TikTok at Josie Chase Vintage. I'm also on Instagram at Josie Chase Vintage as well, but I'm just getting into posting sort of my new branded content on there. So I'm just getting started. 
also working on a website that's to be announced, I guess. But Mm -hmm. yeah, mostly just Josie Chase Vintage. That's where you can find me. And it's really, it's a fantastic Mm -hmm. TikTok account because she not only does, she scratches all of my vintage itches, right? She does does. the history side of it. She has the production showing stuff being made and also like, here's what I thrifted and how to style it. See, and I really like that because Mm -hmm. I'll find cute things all the time and then I'll bring it home and I'm like, "Mm." and here you stay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad that that's coming off well because sometimes I worry. I'm like, do people even like these videos? I I don't know. But yeah, I just try to produce what I would like to see as a consumer and hope that it comes off well to Mm -hmm. my audience. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important to stay true to yourself too because... You sometimes do feel like there's nobody else that's going to like what you like. Yeah, and then sure. that's, I mean, that's one of the one positive things about social media is they collect you or connect you with people all throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, if you reach that one person that's like, oh my gosh, somebody yeah. else likes what I like or do what I do. And it's like, it, that I think is really special mm-hmm. about yeah. all this. And it's, I mean, I'm pretty sure I know at least three people who are going to totally jump on this and love everything you do. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Social media has been great for bringing me connections and new friends too. Cause yeah, not a lot of people around here are into vintage or this sort of stuff. And I've been able to find so many friends and mutual people online. I'm so grateful for them. And yeah, it's amazing. Like, yeah, I didn't realize that there were this many people out there with similar interests, but yeah, mm-hmm. everyone seems to be super nice too. So I'm super grateful to be a part of this community. The vintage yeah. community, for the most part, is a wonderful place to reside. Mm-hmm. It is. It's mm-hmm. been very opening and welcoming to us. And I mean, even for me being more of the newer collector, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody's just so awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah feels- it's a great community. Um, speaking of things that are awesome for They're me, They're not really at all. <laughs> <laughs> it is time for my favorite part of the show, which is the estate sale walkthrough, which is Jill's not favorite part of the show. Um, for those of you that are new to the podcast, every week on the Mothball Prophecies, we do an imaginary estate sale walkthrough. And it is based around our guests' particular interests in the vintage and antique and retro world. There are a couple different scenarios that come up, and each scenario has two items to choose from, sometimes three. And it is our job to pick one of the items listed. You are responsible to find your own loopholes, Josie. We cannot help you break the rules. I and am we won't. yet to find a really good loophole, though. Yeah. But you're, okay. you're allowed to have it. If you think it's between two items and you go, I don't know, is it this? It's definitely that. It's your favorite colors. It's your favorite shape. It's the right amount of what you need for whatever it is. Okay. okay. It's like vintage tarot. If you're thinking of it, <laughs> this is what it is. Okay. And I always say, too, before these, I do like my research on the person we're talking about. And I go over the emails. And every time there's this tidbit that ends up in the estate sale walkthrough that ties into the conversation that we had, which makes it seem very planned out. Like you said, vintage tarot. Vintage tarot. (laughs) All right. Today, we are headed to an estate sale in your neck of the woods. We have headed up there to go to Silver Lake. Because I love that amusement park. And we're going to do some shopping while we're there. We've loaded up. We have our bags, our carts, headbands, and sweatbands ready to go. Do we have coffee? Of course. Okay. We have every uh-huh. beverage. Okay. We have a whole, like, uh, Coleman thermos. Oh. 
Yeah. Oh, sweet. <laughs> We're not messing around. Where, I mean, do you just put a big straw in that? And mm-hmm. just like, yeah. I brought my own cold brew, though, because I can't do hot all day. So I have my ice. You guys have what you need. Okay. Everybody's satisfied. <laughs> okay. All right. We are headed to a home that has been occupied by the same residents since the 60s when they came to settle in the area after their tour in the military. I already hate this. Sorry. Hey. <laughs> we start off in Jill's favorite room, the kitchen. I hate you. Do you take home the complete set of avocado green Tupperware canisters or the complete set of the yellow Tupperware canisters? You see if you talk more shit before the next one. <laughs> Josie, what are you going with? I'm going with the yellow. <laughs> Yellow's a my, more of my favorite color. I was going to say, you seem like a yellow person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cheerful. <laughs> Jill? Uh, they look, both would look so cute in my kitchen. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go... <laughs> Green. Oh. Are you sure? No, but that's what I'm going to do. All right. I am also going to go with the yellow because I'm scared of Jill. So I'm just going to go with the yellow and take the L. <laughs> it's always um, the quiet one. It's always the quiet one. Good job. Next, we go to one of the bedrooms, which was one of their son's bedrooms. And when we walk in, all of the vintage t-shirts are laid out on the mattress. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> Damn it. Do you choose... The vintage Budweiser Ringer tea or the vintage Harley Davidson baseball tea. Harley Davidson baseball tea. Oh, oh, wow. You were like, that was a f- faster than I expected. I know. Jill, they're both my favorite colors. Budweiser's not that good. <laughs> See, there's her default. <laughs> See. I think I'm going to go by, I'm going to do the Budweiser because my grandpa drank it all the time. Oh, no. Oh, classic, yeah. My grandpa was like an Olympia and Ams type of guy. Oh, <laughs> see. See, this yeah. is, this. see, vintage cool. tarot. This is the right piece will pick you. <laughs> I know. I, um, well, I live and die in a baseball tee, so I have to go with the Harley baseball tee because I have like four baseball tees and I love them. Yeah, they're yeah. hard to find. Mm-hmm. I don't like wearing baseball tees. Ethan looks really good in baseball tees, so I'd buy it for him. You do look good in a ringer tee. I do like I love a ringer tee. Those are cool. Okay. Last room. Oh, thank God, because I've got like heartburn over this one. And this one, I just have to apologize to Josie. I'm sorry. <laughs> the last room we come to is, of course, we can't leave this sale without finding the craft room. Okay. <laughs> it is You're a fill a bag sale. Okay. So we have unfurled our trash bags. And there is a plethora of vintage fabrics, all right? Do you choose to fill your bag with the vintage florals or the vintage geometric shapes? So the lines and colors that are very 70s and abstract, a little geometric. Which which has your choice for the bag fill? I would probably say the geometric because oh. they're probably harder to find than the florals. Oh, oh, bait and switch. Yeah, I know. I'm, <laughs> I'm going florals because it's all that vintage Hawaiian stuff I love. This is true. Oh, yeah. Um, great. I am also going to go for the florals because I'm obsessed with oh. caftans right now. 
I did not see that coming. Oh, I have an amazing vintage captain I could give you. It's <gasps> Don't break my heart, Josie. <laughs> it's beautiful. what I just... I specifically bought a sheet at an estate sale to make into a caftan. Because I'm just like... Uh, oh, well, I was watching the Redbird Vintage where they have like their leftover clothing to sell. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that they had already had their live. And I was watching the video... That is like a Hawaiian caftan. I was like, I want it. And they're like, oh, oh so beautiful. Sorry, it's sold. It's and sold. I was like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I just want to be the mom that like wears a caftan and like a towel on my head and like. They're so cool. They're yeah. just chill. They're just so, they're, uh, yeah. yeah. Level up my moo game, okay? Yes. There's nothing Love wrong it. with that. Well, I'm glad that that was not too terribly painful for both of you. <laughs> It was still pretty painful. I'm sorry. Next one's <laughs> on you. You can do the next one. I know. The guests are like, that was fun. I love it. Why am I that gets heartburn? Flips me off at the door. Well, <laughs> Josie, this was a delight. And thank you so much for sitting down with us. I cannot wait to see where this goes for you mm-hmm. and to cheer you on from the sidelines and share your stuff. And I'm just so excited. I'm so excited Thanks for you. So much. This means so much to me that you guys had me on the show and I've never done anything like this before. So it's such an honor and pleasure to be here and talk to you guys and be able to share what I do because I'm, I mostly just stay at home. I don't really get to talk to people about it much. <laughs> I didn't get it out there. Yes. And I'm so excited to yes. share you. Yeah. We can't wait with our listeners. I know that they're, fully going to appreciate it and then to know that you love it just as much as they do is just going to sweeten the deal for them so thank you so much thank you it's awesome to hear even more about the vintage we talk about today in Josie's episode stick around for this week's Curio Corner Josie Chase oh my god she was so cute she was super cute and I was um, really excited when she was referred to us by Jerrica Yasumura on TikTok Mm-hmm. She tagged me in a comment or tagged the uh, mothball TikTok. And she was like, I think you'd be great. And then when we saw that she was also in Idaho native, that just sealed the deal. I know. That's always nice when we get somebody here at home, mm-hmm. home state. The home, home Idaho people. Um, I love what she's doing. She has been slowly releasing more and more videos of her creating patterns and using vintage elements to create mm-hmm. these pieces of clothing. I don't think she has come out with a launch date just yet, which is totally fine. It's got to be perfect. And it's going to take time too. Right. Because she does it all by hand. Mm-hmm. And she's sourcing everything vintage that she can mm-hmm. or sustainable, which is a huge thing. Yeah. 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 But I think when she launches it, it's going to be fantastic. Yeah. And so if you want to see what she's up to, be sure to go over to her TikTok, Josie Chase Vintage. And she shows even different ways of like pairing all of a thrifted outfit together and to yes. make it look cohesive and modern and still super cute. And I just love it. I'm obsessed with it. And she has a great haircut. She has a fantastic <laughs> shag haircut. I, I just have to say it's like it was made for her. I know. I love it when people have hairstyles and I'm like, oh my God, mm-hmm. like that fits you so perfect. Like it just fits her total vibe. Yeah. Like she had this so like complete back package vibe to her that it was just like, I just want to hang out with you mm-hmm. and like watch you style yourself. Right. Cause yeah, she's, it's, it was a real treat to sit down with her and see her cute house and all of the things and kind of get to know the person behind this incredible project that she wants to start. Mm-hmm. And I love- and it- you know, when we started the show, like I was 
aware of the 70s, right? The 60s and 70s aesthetic and all of those things. And it's really, it was like an unexpected growth of like things I look for since we started. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how this whole show has been. Like some's come across, like we'll talk to somebody and I'll be like, oh, I've never even like noticed that or... And now, you know, when they talk about their passions and stuff like that, it's like you appreciate it a little more. And then it's like you want a little piece of that for yourself. Yeah. And you've seen it when I do it is now when I'm out and I see something that somebody we've had on collects, I just have to bring it home. Because then when I walk around my house and I see it, I think of yeah. that person. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I do have kind of a sad update. Speaking of people that you learn to know and learn to appreciate and love, I got a sad phone call this week from the Antique Study Group. Um, I got a phone call headed back to work the other day with the devastating news that one of our members had passed away suddenly this week. And I have been a part of the group for three or four years, three years now, and there have been members that have passed away. And I did not expect this one to hit me as hard as it did. Um, I'm not going to say her name on the show just for her family's sake. And she cannot consent to that. So, um, but she was one of the, the first meeting I went to, she was holding the program. And for those of you that have been here for a while, the antique study group, we meet once a month and one of the members holds a program is what we call it. And they bring one of their items from home and tell the history behind it. That i.e. this is where the curio corner comes from in the whole show. And the first program I went to, I was so nervous and very felt very out of place. And she was giving her program on cufflinks. And when I started and I heard that it was on cufflinks, I went into it going like, what is there to know about cufflinks? What's interesting about that? And cufflinks in and of themselves maybe aren't very interesting, but the story she told about the cufflinks she had in her collection is what made it so endearing to me. And she had three or four pairs of cufflinks that she had brought in. And one of the cufflinks was, I can't remember exactly if it was her husband's father's or her father's or grandfather's, but they were a pair of Tiffany cufflinks. Oh, wow. And they were very plain to look at. They did not have, you know, a bunch of design in them or all of this. But I remember like those were her most prized pair of cufflinks was the Tiffany cufflinks. And I left that first meeting going, wow, something so insignificant, something I would look past so many times was this woman's collection. And it meant so much to her. And that was my first interaction with her. And my interaction since every month when we would see each other, she was always so kind and welcoming and warm and genuinely interested in who I was as a person and what I was bringing to this group. And I grew to kind of fall in love with her as a person and learn more about her collections. Her next collection she shared with us was about Chinese snuff bottles, which are incredible little glass bottles that were made during the Qing Dynasty in China. And it was because tobacco, smoking tobacco was illegal. So they ground Mm -hmm. tobacco into a powder and you put it into a snuff bottle and had a little spoon and you would snort it or rub it on your gums or whatever. And the bottles themselves are probably between two and three inches tall. And they're reverse painted with a single string, like brush, like paintbrush, like a single Mm -hmm. hair on the end of a paintbrush. And these incredible designs are painted. 
on the inside. That was the second collection. I remember seeing one of them had the depiction of a man and a woman fornicating on it on this two and a half inch to three inch bottle. And she passed it around the room and was like snickering at some of the women's responses <laughs> because they did not find it um, as funny as she did. I mean, you've got to have one in the group. You do. And so it was, and she had probably five or six of them. But anyways, I just wanted to say today um, if you could all hold a little special moment for not only me, but the antique study group and this incredible woman, um, and take your time looking at your collections for what somebody would see as insignificant and how much it means to you. And if you want to share it with us, that would be great. But I just wanted to mention that here, um, and just say that, you know, take time to know some old people in your life, some elderly people and learn their stories, even if you're just the only one that knows it. But back to the, back to the curio. There's that little sidebar. That's what I do. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's important. And I, you know, it obviously she touched a special place in your heart for, mm -hmm. and you know, and that's going to be somebody that you'll always remember. And she'll always have like those fond memories that mm -hmm. you will hold and, you know, now when you see a cufflink or a snuff bottle, you'll immediately think of her and her Always. stories. Yeah. And she was, I mean, she was 87 years old. So the fact that I came into her life at this time of her life and got to know this version of her, you know, I didn't mm -hmm. know her as a mother. I didn't know her as a grandmother. I didn't know her as a coworker. I just knew her for this incredibly niche part of uh, both of our lives. Mm -hmm. And that's just so special to me. With all of those women, you know? Yeah. And I think we all like my, I have some of my grandmother's items that I, you know, it's, they're mine. Nobody else is going to know anything about mm -hmm. them. And I know the stories and I know the feelings that hold, that I hold with them. And it's just something special that we all need to remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So take that with you this week. So we move into this time of year of memories of all kinds. Mm -hmm. Um, but I did want to talk about, we didn't have a lot to do in today's Curio Corner, but two very interesting things that have come from it. Interesting and a little scandalous on. Right. Speaking of, you know, seemingly insignificant. Do you want to go first or you want me to go first? Um, I can go first. Okay. So one of the things, well, one of the things that a lot of people know is the Singer sewing machine. Yeah. Very popular. Um, my great grandma had a one that with the foot pedal mm -hmm. and I remember sitting there watching her just like whip that fabric through and like right. and then when I would try it, it would be like good noon good noon good noon so there's yeah. a very special um niche for those people but so this is the history behind it and there are little scandalous parts in this um so I got this uh, article is from silverbobbin.com oh. and it's singer sewing machines models history and value so it's a super long um article and so i'll hit most of the you know interesting parts and stuff like that so the history of the singer sewing machine first sold in 1850 still popular today singer sewing machines have a long and quite lively history Isaac Merritt Singer founded I.M. Singer and Company in 1850. Contrary to popular thought, he did not invent the first domestic sewing machine. 
Instead, he made modifications to a patent design invented by a name named Elias Howell. Singer did design and patent excellent modifications to the accepted design, but it was his business model that made the company a success. He launched the first popular installment payment plan for his machines. He was like the first afterpay? Yeah, it was was the first layaway. Wow. Um, This made the sewing machines affordable to the average person. Before this, only factories and companies owned sewing machines. Singer also marketed the need for a sewing machine in every home. The company developed um, accessible and more portable models over the years. The company also used a hefty door-to-door sales campaign and frequent model updates to keep customers buying new models. I like just like imagine like, you know, how cars, Mm -hmm. like every year there's that new model. Oh, right. So everybody was like, you get that new. Yeah. Did you get the 1860 (laughs) singer? Oh, Oh, yours is a 58. Mm. Oh, that's okay too. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry about it. Singer seized upon the radical business model at the perfect time. Sewing machine innovation and the industrial revolution hit their peak in the mid 19th century. You may also find it interesting that Isaac Merritt Singer's personal life was as flamboyant as his business ideas. He was the son of an immigrant. Isaac began his career as a Shakespearean actor His extravagant personality did not fade away when he achieved success as a businessman later in life. He designed and drove around in a bright yellow carriage that could seat more than 30 people to show off his wealth later in life. (laughs) What the fuck? Is that like the equivalent of a carriage limousine? I mean, it's got to be. How many horses do you need for that? I don't know. You'd probably need, let's see, I would say probably four, maybe six. A draft horses? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Could you imagine like the people, they're like, oh, God so, damn it. So Here comes God. Singer in his bright yellow carriage again. I gotta look yes, up we get it. <laughs> the, uh, I got to look up the horse to carriage equivalent here. I'll, I'll <laughs> report back. Ethan wasn't here. He could tell us. Jesus. Um, during his uh, life as an actor, he embroiled himself in relationships with multiple women at the same time. Isaac. He continued this habit even more ostentatiously after he gained fame and wealth as a businessman. Turd. In the 1860s, he had to step down from leadership of his own company because of the scandal brewing around his affairs. Oh, my God. Okay, get this. By the end of his life, he had fathered 22 children with five different women. Sir, excessive, <laughs> uncalled for, ridiculous, shameful. Like, could you not? You should have sewed that up. For real. Let's give women sewing machines, not extramarital <laughs> children. Though Singer died in eight. 1875, the company he founded continued to thrive. Over the years, I Am Singer and Company became Singer Manufacturing Company and then the Singer Company. The company dominated the global sewing market for a century. From its inception in 1851 upon, um, up until the 1950s. Leading up to World War I, the company outsold the combined sales of all other sewing machine companies worldwide. Wow. Yeah. 
During both world wars, the company ceased sewing machine production for a time. Instead, of, instead they manufactured items that are government contracts, um, which include bombs and munition. Could you imagine, like, all right, guys, we're going to stop making sewing machines. we got to make a bomb real quick. <laughs> I on. know none of you know what you're doing, but figure it out. <laughs> Fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it. Exactly. Famously sold at the Chicago World Fair in 1934. The featherweight 221 featured aluminum parts. This model exemplified the innovation of Singer sewing machines during this era. After World War II, overseas competition for sewing machine manufacturing ratcheted up intensely. Both <laughs> European and Japanese, Japanese manufacturers flooded the market with new machines, um, which, of course, pushed Singer out of the top seat of the market because now everybody was like, well, we're done fighting. Let's go for sewing. <laughs> Back to machines. Yeah. Um, so it says any sewing machine made before 1900 is considered an antique. This covers a wide time span and hundreds of different Singer uh, models. The company consistently delivered machines featuring new and improved designs during this era. For example, the 1885 Singer sold the first machine with a vibrating shuttle. In 1889, they produced the first workable electric sewing machine. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, surprising diffi it's surprisingly difficult to track down a full Singer sewing machine model list, but out of all the many models sold during this time frame, the Turtleback and the Fiddle Bass stand out from the crowd. Um, the Turtle Bass is served, um, served as Singer's first machine designed specifically for domestic use. It also featured an iron treadle for the first time. While the Turtleback had some flaws, it remained sought after because of its rarity. The fiddle bass, the Singer 12, had more long-lasting success and lives as a valued antique. It was the first reliable long-stitch machine on the market and could sew through multiple layers of fabric. Wow. So if you have those models, then I would hold on to them. Sitting on some money. And like I said, this is an extremely long um, article, and it goes on to the different models and how they modified throughout the um decades but i mean good on them i mean starting in the eight like 1850s and still pretty known worldwide yeah i know there was one instance i was looking for a picture of the carriage and i found something on uh, rita's so fun blogspot <laughs> and uh it's talking about um one of the women he had set up a relationship with okay so he had all those children with all these women and most of his marriages ended in divorce right once they found out that he was a cheating asshole um so he his third family with mary eastwood walters who bore him a dollar alice eastwood that was after a divorce singer also had a fourth family with mara mary mcgonagall an employee at his company's factory she had born Singer five children and set up a household with him as the Matthews family. One day, <laughs> Marianne Sponsler saw her husband driving in the carriage with Mary McGonagall openly. This embarrassment was too much for her, and Sponsler had Singer arrested for bigamy. Holy shit! Mm -hmm. He was released on bail, but his reputation was ruined. In 1862, Singer and Mary McGonagall sailed for Europe, where Singer would remain for the rest of his life. But soon, Singer went to Paris, where he met Isabel Eugenie Boyce Somerville. 
Whoa. He married Isabel in 1865, and this marriage endured for the rest of his life, 10 years. They had six children and settled in England. They bought an estate there and built a 115-room palace known as the Old Way Mansion. What? They moved in as soon as they could, and it was habitable, and Singer's daughter Alice was married there. Several of Singer's children by earlier liaisons came to live with him at Old Way. Well, duh, it's a fucking hotel. I, well, you know, that's probably why he had so many rooms, because he knew his kids would all want to come see him. And he couldn't go back to the United States because of the pending charges of bigamy. <laughs> so he couldn't come back here, but he still ran his company from overseas. And then he set up factories in France, near Paris, Brazil, near Rio de Janeiro, and it made it the first American multinational company. Wow. So the things you learn. He died at 63 years old in 1875. He was buried in Torquay, Tor- whatever, it's French. Um, after his death, his many children fought over his estate by his five wives, air quotes. The singer fathered 24 children. Oh. There's, there's a toss-up on the number here, folks. Two died young, so maybe that's where the... Oh. In his will, Singer acknowledged and set up a luxurious trust fund for his 22 children. Okay, this is fucking... This this proves that generational wealth is something that you just, like, if you get it, like, it's you don't have to do anything. Um, his wealth was so vast that it took five generations to trickle his fortune away. Five to put that into perspective, I am fourth generation American. Never knew my ancestors, never knew much about them. But if I am fourth generation and there is still enough money in my family's wealth for me to live comfortably before it starts to affect the two previous generations' livelihood. Well, and then like the fourth generation, you would think, okay, I'm going to invest. So think. that my next generation and the generations following, they could be decent, but no, they were like, by the fifth generation, they were like, screw it. You're cut off. You're cut off. Wow. What a, I got to call my mom about that. My mom is a home ec teacher. So, oh, so she, I grew up around sewing machines. My grandmother has a faff. My mom has had faff and Bernina's and all of those things in my life. Um, I grew up with the sound of a sewing machine above my bedroom. Nice. And that's how I fell asleep. I had my first sewing machine at five years old. It was a Um, The other interesting one we talked about, which also ties to my childhood, I talk about the seven up sign outside of the laundromat in the town I'm from. Mm-hmm. And it is no longer there. It's now a regular, regular, run of the mill graphic design. You know, it's not the seven up sign anymore. Um, so we talk about an artist, and I have seen. Different versions of this man's work across Instagram in various textiles, yeah. prints, art that like people are selling. Every, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure almost every single person has seen his work one way or another. Yes, and there is some drama surrounding him also. So, of course, I'm talking about Peter Max. This information comes from ParkWestGallery.com. Um, Peter Max is a visionary pop artist from the '60s. He is still alive to this day. And he was a master of neo-expressionism. His vibrant and colorful works have become lasting part of contemporary American culture, especially with the 60s and 70s. Um, during his career, he has painted for six U.S. presidents, was the official artist for the 2006 Winter Olympics U.S. team, 
and has created art for Woodstock, the World Cups, U.S. Opens, and Super Bowls. So Peter Max was born in Germany in 1937, and he was born to two Jewish parents. Um, and his family fled Nazi Germany in 1938, where they moved and settled in Shanghai, China, and they lived there for 10 years. Could you imagine? Right. Do we go towards America or do we go the other way? Right. And I'm wondering, like, how many, like, people from that area actually did go to China? Mm -hmm. Yeah, how many places they, well, if you think about it, like, it's super far away from occupied Germany. Yeah, and I'm wondering, like, if it was almost, like, was it cheaper to go that way? Or it was like, now I just want to know because you never hear people during that time going to China. This is the first instance that I like can recall of hearing of a Jewish mm-hmm. family settling in China after yeah. that. Um, so they were there for 10 years and it said that Max was incredibly artistic as a child. He was always enamored by color and he was always searching for ways to draw on everything to the detriment of his mother. For Max, color was paired with sound and intense synesthesia, which um, Billie Eilish has that. So when she creates her music, it is like there's different sounds and textures and colors mm-hmm. that come to her. Yeah. And there's lots of artists with that. Um, the ripple of crayons on a steamer trunk was the first memorable experience for the artist where he realized his love for sound and color. Um, today, there are few works by Max that were created in silence. Early in his life, he fell in love with three things, comic books, movies, and jazz, all uniquely American. In China, his lessons were taught in English. So when he first saw an American movie at the cinema and picked up his first comic book, he was thrilled to understand them. There's another, they talk about the impressions of his work too, was where they lived in China was across the street from a Buddhist temple. And so he was seeing all of the interactions of Buddhism and different depictions of it. And that heavily influenced his art also. Mm-hmm. In 1948, Max and his family traveled through Tibet, which had a profound effect on Max's artistic development and spiritual growth. A German scientist and astronomer staying in the same hotel as his family also had an impact on Max, introducing him to cosmology, which was another one of his loves forever. That same year, Max and his family moved to Israel. Max became fluent in Hebrew and began delving more seriously into his art. His parents tried to structure his creativity by enrolling him in art lessons with a Viennese expressionist after school, which how cool is that? Professor Hunick enlightened Max, changing the way he thought about color. He became the professor's protege for the next two years and began defining himself as a colorist, an artist skilled in using and manipulating color. When he needed more assistance with his drafting, he turned to comic books following therefore shortened lines and vivid style, which... That makes so much sense with the art he creates. His fascination with cosmology expanded when he began reading the encyclopedia beginning with the letter A. He got no further than astronomy. He was so enamored by the subject that he began to take evening classes at Technion, a scientific university in Israel. Later in life, this quest for cosmic knowledge would become spiritual as much as scientific. Before immigrating to the United States, the Max family traveled to Paris for six months in 1953, where Max spent time studying at the Louvre, which is insane. Could you imagine? Right. Just taking classes by all of these incredible artists and then specifically the Louvre. I think I would die. Yeah. And that's where he started to fall in love with photorealism and abstract work. Mm -hmm. They settled in Brooklyn, where Max graduated high school, and then he went on to art school. Um at the Arts Students League in 1956. He learned drafting and anatomy, finally honing the photorealism 
he admired of Bougerou. Max spent nearly all of his time in the Art Studies League, taking every class possible for the next five years. He discovered, however, that photorealism limited his imagination. He created his last realistic painting in 1959. And his early photorealism work is incredible. So where we start to learn of Peter Max is in the 60s. He was fresh out of school and he decided that he wanted to have his own art gallery. And this was when they were starting to kind of fall in love with psychedelic style through posters and advertising and graphic work. He would achieve was sought after by companies across the country. Agencies, magazines, and national publications sought out Max's style for a wide variety of projects and commissions. The story behind his poster for the Central Park Bee-In on Easter in 1967 was adapted for the Academy Award-winning director Milos Forman's film Hair. Max found himself at the center of cultural revolution, magnified by his unique graphic style. As an iconic artist and designer, his posters could be found on the walls of college dorm rooms around the country. In 1968, while working on a film in Paris, Max met Swami uh, Sachidanada. Um, he was a yogi and Eastern spirituality, a huge member of that community. Max invited him to stay with him in the United States, helping him establish the Integral Yoga Institute, spreading the teachings of yoga throughout America, with more than 70 branches throughout the United States, right? Plus 21 other nations. Max helped introduce yoga to the greater portion of the world, enlightening the young and creative minds. So that whole movement of bringing yoga to the United States and that movement that swept the country, plus his art, was so impactful in America is insane. Well, yeah, and especially that time, like people were trying to find, like they were trying to find themselves. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, it only makes sense that that, those two aspects took off. It's insane. So from the sixties, he was doing more graphic stuff with printing. And in the seventies, he moved to more painting. Um, He shut down that graphic workshop and took himself on off of the radar for almost 18 years to spend time with his family and concentrate on his new passion, painting. Um, and during the time of the sixties, when Peter Max was so popular, he was creating works for the Beatles. He was on the cover of time magazine. He was creating stuff that you now see like Jill and I have seen on scarves and clothing and posters and postcards. Yeah. Like I said, like literally everybody has seen his work in one way or another. Yeah. And it's his signature style, you know, where it's cosmic and it's a bright use of colors. There's bold graphics and shapes that are used, loose brush strokes. He adapted his techniques from that graphic work to painting. And with the palette becoming softer and more diverse and his uh, stroke, which was more broader and textured. The influence of comic books with their foreshortenings of lines, bold colors, and heavy black outlines stayed with Max throughout his career and formed the foundation of his style alongside the color, spirituality, and music. His accomplishments include he has been featured in more than 46 museums and 50 galleries worldwide. He was featured on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson in 1968 and was on the cover of Life magazine in 1969. He has completed painting projects for President Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, and Obama. Holy shit. Yes. He designed four posters for the Grammy Awards and was one of the artists chosen to redesign NBC's Peacock logos between 1993 and 2002. 
He was appointed the official artist of five Super Bowls, the World Cup in 1994, and the NHL All-Star Game in 96. This is insane. He was commissioned by the U.S. Post Office to create the first ever environmental 10-cent stamp in 1974, commemorating the World's Fair in Spokane, Washington. He was invited by then First Lady Nancy Reagan in 1981 to paint portraits of the Statue of Liberty at the White House. Wow. And it just, the list goes on and on of his achievements. But the drama that's kind of revolving around Peter Max nowadays, in 2016, Peter Max was diagnosed with either Alzheimer's or dementia. I saw two cases of where they were saying it was one or the other. And in doing so, he was also married to a woman that was incredibly abusive and was going to be convicted or was convicted of elder abuse. And she actually committed suicide. And after that happened, Peter Max was put into a guardianship, much similar to a conservatorship. Mm-hmm. And the guardianship is run by four attorneys. And so there's a feud. Peter Max's daughter, Libra Max, is trying to release her father from this guardianship because he doesn't apparently have access to any choices or his own fortune. And supposedly, these four guardians that are attorneys have drained the estate of $16 million over the course from 2016. That is sickening. Right. In the defense of his guardianship. And there's the feud between siblings. There's a feud between Libra Max and her brother. So there's a watch that closely. That's like the articles for that are as new as September and November. So it's, it's currently happening with trying, and he is still alive. He's in his eighties and has dementia and the family doesn't have. Well, and that's the thing. Like I understand the daughter wanting to get him released from it. However, mm-hmm. from a medical standpoint, he can't because he can literally make no decisions for himself. Right. And I under, like, I get, like I get both mm-hmm. in because being in the medical field and seeing this, you know, well, you, I it's mean, hard. Oh, and yeah, that choice you have to make. And then I don't know how old his kids are or are the circumstances of the woman he was married to before. And if, you know, trusts and wills and all of those things, wherever they were at, that just created a, a spaghetti noodle clusterfuck of assets and heirs and all of that. Because it, it, the two children split the estate, right? But where he is still alive, right. they don't have yeah. a say over that estate. No, and then, you know, and that's why it's so important for everybody to, like, get, you know, pick the person who is going to make the right choices for Mm -hmm. you, Mm -hmm. you know, and it not necessarily, it is your spouse or your children. It, you know, it could be like your best friend or something like that. But I mean, I have seen this over and over again where, you know, somebody's thinking they're picking this person because they have to. Yeah. And then that person just has no good mm-hmm. intentions for anything. Yeah. And revisit, like if you have wills and trusts, revisit the wording on them every couple of years because things can change to where one phrase inside of that document can determine the end result of that person's estate. Speaking yeah, from personal I experience. Mean, yeah. I you know like... You, same here. Like I've seen families torn apart because mm-hmm. there was no will because the parents thought the kids would evenly split. We'll just figure it out. Yep. And not fight over anything. But mm-hmm. then they don't realize like some things are more important to others than, you know, 
there's like that piece of jewelry everybody wants because they think it's so valuable. Right. And the person who actually does want it wants it for sentimental value. Mm -hmm. The other important thing to have set up for any loved ones in your life is a power of attorney. If somebody, whether it's an elderly parent, grandparent, family member, or whatever, be sure that somebody has power of attorney set up for choices being made during end-of-life medical care or emergent medical care. Yes, and it's not morbid to Mm -mm. think these things through. A lot of older people, I mean... My parents included, like I've, you know, I've been asking these questions, like who's the executor mm-hmm. of your will? Do you have a will? Who's mm-hmm. your power? And you know, they don't have any because my parents don't want to think of that. Right. And that's I've had the same conversations with my parents, and I'm going, no, I. We are all going to meet that at some point. Like, there's no beating it, and to, having things laid out in the way they should be laid out, and having conversations about them without grief involved is much easier to do. Yeah. And it's just, I, you know, I personally want to make sure I'm following out your wishes. If I don't know what you want, I, it's not guaranteed that it's going to happen the way you are. Mm -hmm. That being said, yes, you have passed away and you won't know either way, but Mm -hmm. giving me a way of like, okay, they wanted this done. Mm -hmm. I will do my best to do that. You know, and granted it's just me and my sister, but yeah, regardless, even if it's just you're a single child, you need to have that. Mm Mm-hmm. So there's your mom corner of the cereal say, corner. Thank you for coming to our TED Talk. <laughs> get your get your poop in a pile, everybody. Okay? Yeah. Also, you and I. Um, that was all we had today for Miss Josie Chase. Um, please go and find her online on TikTok and as well as Instagram. She's working on getting that set up. And be sure to support makers, especially this holiday season. Support small businesses, support LGBTQIA, BIPOC, you know, women-led businesses. And with supply chain issues, it is much easier to find something local than it is to order something online that may or may not arrive in time. And it damn sure means a lot more to somebody in your life. Thrift Mm -hmm. something, find something at an antique store, bid on it in an auction, do something, you know, buy somebody a gift that they can't get anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, I think this year is a a good year to really sit down and analyze, you know, do you need to buy all those brand new items? There's so many Mm -hmm. like, well, and like my husband, he um, went to an estate sale and he did most of my Christmas shopping there. See, Granted, he has them wrapped and sitting in the corner of our basement. So I stare at them all the time now, Mm -hmm. not wanting to shake them because if they're glass, I will break. You know better. No shaking. I can't help it, guys. No shaking. If you like this episode and you're enjoying the show, please go leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. The algorithm overlords really like that, and we do too. We like a little pat on the back. We do appreciate it. Right now, we would like to say our tremendous thank yous to our beloved patrons. To see all the info for our Patreon, visit our Instagram bio, or you can look us up on themothballprophecies.com. And there's a link to our Patreon there. Right now, we would like to thank Katrina and Erica in Arizona. Gray in Colorado. Emily and Crystal in Nevada. Ruth in British Columbia. Ruby and Autumn in Ohio. Aaron in Wisconsin. Melissa and RJ in Florida. Gina in South Carolina. Julia in Sweden. Jasmine in Kentucky. Kyla in Indiana. Kelly, Javier, 
Shanna, Mandy, and Riley in California. And Betty, Lisa, Aaron, TC Lionel, Melissa, Christina, Becky, and Ashley in Idaho. A gigantic thank you to our wonderful team behind the scenes. Gray for making us sound like we know what we're doing week after week after week. And for Spellcheck for helping us look so good on paper. We appreciate the hell out of both of you and all of you that tune in every week to our little show, The Mothball Prophecies. Yes. As always, I hope you find some good shit. And I hope you're remembering to look under those tables. Always. Bye. See ya.